Lord, uh, we thank you so much for today, that you've set apart a day for your church, your family to gather around and uh, focus solely on you as a first fruits of how we're going to spend our week. I thank you for your ebbs and flows that that cause us to reflect on you even when uh, we want to wander or drift away. Lord, I thank you for your grace and that you, every time we come running to you, we come running to you as you have arms open wide to embrace us. I pray we would be encouraged by this message today and uh, consider you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as you can see, we're going to talk about the prodigal king. And uh, Anvesh actually gave me the title for this, and I think it was super clever. Um, and you'll see that by when we talk about the outline. So, first, uh, a background for this that's going to really help you get a lot more out of this is if you go back and listen to this message that John Gray did in 2018. It was like the first one he did at our church, old building, um, and it stuck with me enough that I remembered it when I was thinking of this message. Okay, so how many messages can you remember two years later? Um, Almost three years later. This was a, a good one. So... We're going to talk about his message and how it plays into uh, what we're speaking about today. Um, he kind of briefly went over Zechariah, Zechariah 3, and then we're going to jump into talking about the story of Esther, um, just one section of it, and her encounter coming before the king. And then we're going to talk about um, what a lot of us know as the story of the prodigal son, which if you know anything about our church, we don't like to call it the story of the prodigal son. We like to call it the story of the prodigal father um, because it was the father who lavished. It was the father who uh, was really reckless in his generosity, more so than the son was reckless in his rebellion. Um. And we're going to tie all that together and and show how the true prodigal king, um, who is God, has been so reckless in loving us, um, and how great of a thing that is for us. So first we're touching on John Gray's message. Uh, The title of it was Christ Who Clothes Us in His Holiness, if you're trying to look it up. Uh, it's also, the link to it should be in the comment section of the live stream, so if you want to find it the easy way, you go back to the live stream and click on the link. Otherwise, the, the title was Christ, comma, who clothes us in his holiness, and it was over Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, and that's under the uh, Sunday Bible study messages uh, podcast. So first we're going to read Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. So it should be up, well, you can pull it up, but I'll read it. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, 
The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a log snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he responded and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your guilt away from you and will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, Have them put on a headband on his head. So they put the clean headband on his head and clothed them with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now this, this section of scripture is really full and uh, would do you well to go back and read it in multiple translations um, because it's just full of imagery and uh, you get a much better picture that way. But the point that John Gray's message was he was trying to make here is that you know Joshua, the high priest, um, Greg alluded to this earlier in his message, how we're all priests in the new covenant, right? So when we read about Joshua, the high priest, it's important that we read about us, okay? Right? This was a priest standing before the judgment seat of God. It said, Satan was standing at his right, ready to accuse him. Accuse the high priest. And honestly, he probably had a right to accuse him because he was in filthy garments. He was the high priest in filthy garments. So the high priest was someone who represented the whole people. He was the best of them, basically. The one that was most consecrated, most um, devoting himself to the things of the Lord standing before God at the judgment seat, taking the judgment for all the people, okay? And he was in filthy garments, filthy rags. From head to toe, he was filthy. Imagine what that meant for the people of God. They were filthy beyond what he was. If he was the best of them and he was filthy, imagine the rest of the people. So Satan had a right to accuse him. You weren't ready to do your priestly duty. You weren't dressed in the right vestments and garments ready to do, you know. There's a, a little bit of a thing in our culture where like, it's okay that we, we don't do things for religious reasons. We've kind of gone the other way from like Catholicism and stuff and we don't dress nice for church as much anymore. And uh, we kind of do that as an overcorrection for, you know, religiosity or trying to do things just because it's tradition. But the truth is, is this is the sanctuary of God. And the reason I dress, try to dress nice is uh, my parents always taught me it was because we're honoring God. You know, and, you know, that's that's a small thing. I'm not saying you have to, like, go out and buy a three-piece suit or something, Um But I'm trying to set a framework for you that John Gray set really well is that this guy should have been dressed really nice because he was the one that was going into the, the judge, before the judgment seat of God and pleading for all of Israel. And he was in filthy garments. And so are we as we come before God 
Every time we try to enter into his presence, we're coming before the judgment seat of God. And every time, we're clothed in filthy garments. And that should terrify us. That should have terrified Joshua. But instead of letting Satan accuse Joshua, the messenger, the angel of God, said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. You have no right to accuse Joshua. The Lord rebuke you. I plucked this man out of the fire before he caught on fire. And then he took, it says festive garments here, festive robes, but he took the clean, bright, beautiful clothing and replaced Joshua's rags and filth for beautiful robes. And obviously this is... uh, this image of God exchanging through his messenger beautiful vestments in exchange for filthy rags is how the image of Christ's death on the cross removing our sin and putting on Christ's righteousness onto us, okay? It's a legal thing. It's scripture in the Old Testament saying that Christ will legally make you righteous enough to come before God. And that it will be Satan who's rebuked, not you. That's a big deal. Um, John Gray's message also mentioned how uh, the first time someone tried to clothe themselves or was clothed was our first parents, Adam and Eve. And uh, he made a great point to to call to our imagination um, how terrible clothing that Adam and Eve tried to construct for themselves. They basically made loincloths for themselves out of leaves. <laughs> that's, an aw- that's an awful, awful clothing option. First of all, I don't know if you've ever like gotten produce. It, produce is always going bad in my house because we don't use it enough. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it, Even when you have it in the fridge, you know, you get a week or two out of, like, spinach or something, you know, and if it's left out, you know, you get a couple days depending on how warm it is outside. Could you imagine trying to, like, make clothes that are going to last you a day? They did awful, but God slew an animal for them, the first death, and he did it a lot better he made them a lot better clothes than, than they had tried to make for themselves. He, he took the death that Adam and Eve deserved so that he could clothe their shame. And that's what the gospel is really about, is Christ dying on the cross and taking our sins and clothing us with his righteousness. Taking our filthy rags and giving us Festive garments. So the John Gray's message, why I say this is a really good prelude into this, is he was giving you the why you're allowed to enter God's presence. And I hope to tell you, um, or I hope to encourage you to do it. <laughs> right? Um, he says you can, 
but I feel like some of us still think like it's not that great of a thing to go into God's presence or something. We'd rather remain in our filthy rags. And I want to encourage you to take on the festive garments or the beautiful vestments and the robes that God's given us and enter into God's presence. So we're going to turn to uh, Esther Uh, chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 10. And again, for all these sections of Scripture we're going to be reading, like I, it's really good if you take the messages that are preached on Sundays and get some con- more context to them, because, you know, we only have so much time to tell you stuff. So, you know, you can read a lot more. You could probably go home and read Esther, all of it today. Esther 4.10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king in the inner courtyard who is not summoned, he has only one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. And they reported Esther's words to Mordecai. The Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the other Jews. So some background here is there was a plot out that uh, Haman went to the king and basically got permission um, kind of under a false accusation that these Jews weren't obeying his law and got permission to send out a decree for all of them to be killed. So the very Jewish people scattered in a foreign land, their, their lineage, the God of, God's people's lineage was at stake here. They were standing before the judgment seat of God. It was death or a miracle for them. And Mordecai told Esther this. And he said, you've got to go plead our case. He said, you have to be the high priest to go before, before the king and, and stand before him in our place. And she says, I can't, I might die. He says, so his reply is, you'll die anyways, probably. <laughs> For if you keep silent at this time, Liberation and rescue will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants also will fast in the same way. And then I will go to the king, which is not in accordance with the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes. And, and it's an important imagery here. She put on her royal robes because, um, you know, I read John Gill's commentary on this. And he said that she most likely was wearing garments of mourning. Because they were in a season of fasting. Now it was standard practice at that time. If you were in a season of fasting, you'd be wearing sackcloth. Now she probably, because she was in the, in the palace, was not wearing sackcloth, but she definitely had some kind of attire to prove that she was in mourning. And she took those robes off and put on royal robes. Again, these are royal robes that the king provided for her. Right? And stood in the inner courtyard of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite of the entrance of the palace. And Esther stood there quaking. Full of fear. Fear of rejection, which most certainly meant death. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the courtyard. The moment we've all been waiting for. She obtained favor in his sight. That's good news. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther Esther approached and touched the top of the scepter to say, I acknowledge that you've spared my life. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Up to half of the kingdom, it shall be given to you. Now that was a, that was a prodigal gift. Um, at that time, the kings of Persia were known to give maybe a city to a queen as a gift. Um, but half the kingdom was a lot for that kingdom. What he was saying is half the kingdom is saying we're in this 50-50 were co-heirs. Okay. So I wanted to bring across this point of like what Esther was going through was probably rightfully, you know, it had been 30 days since she had been called to the king. So, you know, if I didn't call my wife for 30 days, she'd probably think I wasn't too fond of her. Esther was probably thinking the king wasn't too fond of her right now. But luckily, we can look back at this and see this imagery as an image of God and his people and with him as a better king. A king that doesn't leave us for 30 days by ourselves. A king that we know where we stand with him. And she was full of fear of rejection and most likely death And she went anyways because the alternative was outside was death. And she came in hoping to at least be heard out. She didn't come in ready to ask for half the kingdom. She was just asked, wanted to go in to merely ask to be heard. And not die. But she was instead of met with just an ear... She was met with generosity and authority. She was given favor and given authority 
So turn with me to Luke 15. We'll try to speed through this one a little bit. Luke 15. Is this thing on? Can you go to the next slide? There you go. This is the story of the prodigal son, or as we like to call it, the prodigal father. And I would think this is a very similar picture of Esther before the king. That's why I have it on here. And he said, a man has two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate in wild living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began doing without. He was starving. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Not a great job. Even in that culture, the pig was like the lowliest of the animals. They didn't, bacon wasn't very popular then. (laughs) And he longed to have his fill of the carapods that the pigs were eating. He wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. And no one was giving him No one was giving him anything, but when he came to his senses, hopefully we all have a moment, have had a moment like that, by God's grace, he said, how many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread, but I am dying here of hunger. I will set out and go to my father and will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired laborers. So he set out and came to his father, but when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. So the point where this begins to parallel Esther's story is the moments right before, the moments leading up to, to the son's return to his father, right? Um, in one sense, outside of his father's presence was death. That was his alternative. I stay out here, I'm going to die. I'm going to starve. Or I go to my father and hope that he hears me out and maybe lets me be one of his hired servants. A chance at life. But if he goes, he's also facing the possibility that his dad rejects him 
He's left in shame and is, is disowned. Now, some of us, like, in our culture, that's probably, like, the idea of being disowned doesn't feel like death to us in our culture. But in that culture, being disowned was, like, death. Okay? Family was everything. A father's name was everything. Being disowned by your father was being disowned from your whole family's lineage. It was like the worst thing that could happen to you. God forbid he had been a woman who was disowned, which you couldn't get by in that culture without someone looking over you if you're a woman. The family unit was like vital to, to survival. And so that's what he was facing. He was facing similar things to what Esther was facing. She was full of fear of rejection, which meant death, and so was the son that returned. But he wasn't met with rejection or disowning. It says when it came to that moment where he was coming up to his father, His father saw him while he was still a long way off. This is Esther standing in the courtroom, seen by the king. And the son's waiting, will I have favor or not? And it says his father saw him and felt compassion for him. It's the same thing as favor. And he was met with favor, generosity, and authority. He was given... He was clothed with robes to replace his filthy rags and given his father's ring, which is in that time the signet ring, which basically said, you can do business in my name. You have as much authority as I have. He was co-heirs with his father now. So the prompting of this message in the last three minutes we have... um, was a moment I had recently in worship where I was doing it out of a sense of obligation um, and I was full of, you know, I, like Greg mentioned earlier, um, I, it was one of those moments where, you know, you weren't doing all the things that you were supposed to be doing. You know, I wasn't reading my Bible much the weeks leading up to that moment, um, I was feeling really convicted and condemned for my sin. I basically felt like I was in filthy rags. And I felt like someone coming before a righteous king, awaiting his judgment. And because of that, the fear of that judgment, I think probably the week up to then, I had kind of avoided coming to God's presence because I know the second I knew the second I would do that would be the second that I the judgment was made right I had to find out did I have God's favor or not felt like I deserved death but the truth is is death was waiting for me outside of God's presence and so eventually that became so overwhelming, I 
said, I have to go into God's presence because even if I'm rejected, it's better to have a chance of being accepted than to have guaranteed death outside of God's presence. But the thing is, I should have known better. I, didn't, I wasn't in Esther's situation or even the, the son's situation where I was coming before an earthly man who was imperfect, who may never have told me that I was favored before, who never went through the situation before. I, I was coming before God who had already declared his favor over me. And I wasn't like Esther or the, the son who didn't know what was waiting on the other side. Scripture tells us clearly that we are co-heirs, that we are favored, that we have nothing but generosity waiting for us. And it was like such an obvious moment when I finally started to worship, and despite all my filthy garments, I was clothed in righteous robes and entered easily into God's presence and felt his love. And so where John Gray set the groundwork to say you're allowed to, I hope this has set the groundwork to say you should. And don't delay. Don't waste time debating whether you want death or life. Because it's an easy choice. There's nothing up in the air about where you stand with God. If Esther could stand before a pagan king and the son could stand before an earthly father, how much more can you stand before God and do it readily? You don't have to wait till you're starving. Right? Oftentimes, you don't even have to go through a bunch of mourning and fasting. Hopefully, you go through repentance, but it's not like you have to do days and days of mourning and fasting to enter God's presence. You can do it whenever. Because you know you're favored. It's, he's already stretched out his scepter to you. You just have to acknowledge it and be willing to remove your filthy rags and put on his, his beautiful robes. Um, so that's it for today's message. Anvesh, could you come up and prepare the communion for us?